Long Beach Sermons, visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org. Um, just saying. No, I don't know if Dave said it out loud or if it was just in his head that he said, yuck. <laughs> um, but I will say, in a similar way, the sermon series that we are wrapping up today, Faith in Five Scenes, was also a request. It was a request of many of you in the congregation here at City Church who said, hey, we want the whole big story of what this faith thing means, but, but tell, it to, tell it to us in a way we can hear whether because we're kind of new to this whole Jesus thing or because we've heard it in ways that, that we just, it, they felt twisted and wrong. So, so reframe it for us. Give us the whole big picture. And so we've been doing this, this series, Faith in Five Scenes, and overall, it's been really fun. But then there's today. And this one that's supposed to be about the end times. And similarly today, if I went, oh, yuck, <laughs> right? Like, because we have a lot of baggage, many of us who've, who've grown up in churches. I put a little poll up on Instagram uh, just asking people, hey, when you hear end times, what do you think? And it was all, I think, terror. I think the Left Behind series. Some of you are laughing and others of you are like, what? You, you weren't part of the subculture. Good on you. <laughs> uh, it was a thing. Does it sound inviting? Is it a good thing to be left behind? No. Um, those are the things that we often think of for those of us who've been raised in churches. And, and even if we weren't, when you think about Christians and end times, you might not have good connotations. You might think, well, those Christians who don't care about environmental justice or creation care, Christians who don't care about, well, social justice and and things that are going on in the world because, well, the whole world may end soon anyway. Often, that's kind of the, the cultural perception of Christians, and it's rooted in some real stuff. So with all that, there is, there is a fifth scene. There, there is this part of the story that is about what are we heading to? What is the ultimate end and aim of our story as humanity. Um, for some of you, I want to be honest, because of all of the negative stuff, the yuck factor, it's hard for you to want to engage this stuff. And so Dave and I both want to actually tell you from the beginning, there is an escape hatch. You know, <laughs> hopefully this is kind of a safe space for 30 minutes to talk about it. But then if you're like, yeah, I don't want to think about this again for another two to five years, okay, that's all right. There's a reason the book of Revelation is at the end of the Bible. And it's not just, hey, beginning and end of the story, Genesis to Revelation. It's actually because the church throughout the centuries has often had kind of an ooh relationship with Revelation. This, like, we're not quite sure what to do with it. One of those old white guy church fathers that people talk about all the time, Martin Luther, you know, actually wasn't sure that he thought it belonged there at all. We've had a complicated relationship. And so if you're feeling that this morning, you're not alone. We feel it. Christians throughout the ages have felt it. Yeah, and I, I grew up in a Lutheran church where talking about Revelation is pretty marginal, but it still snuck in from time to time. So I remember one of my earliest memories in church because we didn't, the kids sat with everybody in Sunday service. We didn't, we didn't get carted off to Sunday school. 
uh, unfortunately, in some ways. <laughs> so there was the occasional uh, really old pastor who came up and talked about end times, and that was inevitably about Revelation. And when he did, he was always angry, and he was talking about this really scary stuff. And as a kid, I remember thinking, what is this? It's mm -hmm. kind of scary, and I didn't really understand it. Brenda and I were talking about this a little bit. It would have been helpful if my parents had kind of pulled me aside and explained what to do with it. That, that's not what happened. But so um, I think part of what, what we kind of recognize is even if you want to set Revelation aside, it's kind of hard to do because even if you weren't raised in the church, it's just kind of percolated its way through our culture. I mean, you think about um, all of the disaster movies, all of the dystopian fiction, all of the stuff that's not even necessarily theology, it's just part of our culture. That's all been infused into our experience because of uh, Revelation and the, and the impact it's had on mm -hmm. our culture. Um, so part of what we wanted to kind of talk through with you all today is just to recognize that this really dominant way of experiencing Revelation is isn't the only way to think about it, and in fact is, in the grand scheme of the church's history, kind of a new way of thinking about it. Um, all of the kind of date setting and all of the um, marching out, what, what equates to what, all of that stuff only started coming around, I know 200 years ago sounds a long time, but if you think about the church's history of 2,000 years, it's relatively recent. And in American history, uh, what was dominant in the 1800s, where they were pretty sure that the end of time was right around the corner, was actually a really different view. It was a very optimistic view. And, and Americans at the time who thought the end was, was near were really into all kinds of social reforms. So mm -hmm. people who were followers of Jesus are really passionate that they were part of the end, engaged in things like abolition, women's rights, prison reform, education, all kinds of things that I think in general we could, we could get behind. So, um, so we're, we're trying to think this morning about how to think about the end in ways that are maybe uh, less bleak than the ways we've been exposed to over time. So. Yeah, yeah, maybe even redemptive. We would right? hope so, yes. Maybe even as positive saying, like not only could we maybe defuse some of the negativity, but we could maybe even reclaim a little bit of that 18th, 1800s energy of saying we get to lean in. There's something hopeful. Yeah. Ah, yeah. I love that. So hopefully you guys can hang with us. I think it's going to be good. Um, our friend Kareen Youssef is going to come up and read scripture for us. Would you welcome Kareen? Actually, do this way. Uh, and if you would be willing to stand, if you're able, in honor of the reading of God's word. Thanks, Kareen. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures at the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all earth. 
he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for person, you have made them to be to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. People of God, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Corrine. All right, so when we were trying to figure out the scripture for today, <laughs> we had to think through a lot of different parts of Revelation. We wanted to find a passage where when we were done, uh, when everyone says, um, thanks be to God, it wouldn't end, thanks be to God, which we get sometimes where you're like, I think we're thankful. Um, but so, that was weird. <laughs> yeah, but it was weird. And, and even there's some beautiful stuff in what we just read that we'll probably unpack with you in just a bit, but there's also lots of weird stuff, right? So you get a little taste of the weirdness um, without some of the bleakest stuff, because mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's a lot more uh, dark stuff in there. With our group last week, I think we were in a, in a passage where it talks about blood flowing up to the level of the horse's bridles for miles, and it's, it's pretty hideous stuff. So uh, pretty, pretty rough. So, um, so we're going to start by thinking a little bit about um, where, we should, where we should begin when we think about the end. And, and we actually probably shouldn't begin with Revelation. We should begin with Jesus. Um, and I think there's probably no better way, at least in my mind, to think about that than to think about the vision statement that City Church uh, has used to kind of encapsulate what we think is at the heart of, um, of the vision of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And it, it was what Bill said just a moment ago. And, um, and I just want to say, as a personal note, when we first started coming to City Church a couple years ago, um, I had a hard time not getting emotional every time that was read because uh, it's a really beautiful statement of what I think it means to follow Jesus, um, and and I think it's really beautiful. So um, we should start with the Jesus of the Gospels, and I think any reading that we end up with that feels at odds with that is something that we need to rethink. So. Um, so we think about the vision statement. We talk about being um, radically welcoming, which I think is uh, one of the things that's most beautiful about City Church. And anything that pushes us away from other people or puts us as judges over them um, is something that we should resist and reject as not biblical. So I think about one of the things that comes to mind for me, this, there, there are sadly plenty of examples, but I think about in the wake of um, Hurricane Katrina, where over a thousand people lost their lives. Um, some of the poorest people, mostly people of color whose lives were devastated. And then, you know, famous evangelists were saying, uh, this is God's judgment on sin. That, we just have to call BS on that and say that, mm-hmm. that doesn't reflect the, the heart of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then the second part is of the statement is being on a journey toward Jesus. So one of the things that we see in, um, which of Revelation is a lot of these people are in and these people are out. And I think we have to really resist that kind of us versus them language, anything like that, um, that 
calls us away from kindness is not in the spirit of Jesus. So I think some of those images in Revelation that are really fearful or the left behind stuff are like, huh, we got raptured away and then some other people got stuck behind to, to mm -hmm. deal with all the horrible things. Anything that would cause us to sort of revel in the suffering of other people, not, not the heart of Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last part, the, the joining him in the renewal of all things. I think um, when I think about that, that's aligned with the vision of Jesus. Um, so sometimes these ideas about end times have made Christians say, well, you know, why should I care about uh, recycling? Because God's just going to destroy the earth. Or more poignantly, I think about people who say, um, like Billy Graham very famously said after Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, he basically said, you know, um, that's never going to happen in our day and age. Um, only when Jesus comes back will black and white children walk down the street holding hands mm. together because basically we as human beings can't, can't help make the world a better place. It has to be some divine end times intervention. Mm. Mm. Um, so, um, so I think we should think instead of all these kind of horrific images, think about the way Jesus talked about the end uh, that we see in the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus taught and said, um, basically asking God that, uh, that what his will is on earth, or on heaven, would be done here on earth. That, that feels more connected to me. Yeah, that that prayer actually gives us a little bit of an insight. What was Jesus' frame yeah. as he thought about the end times, that there was something more hopeful? Yes. And definitely less apathetic than just letting the trash pile up because yep. screw it. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, that's so good. I, as you're, you're talking, so I'm thinking about a conversation that I had. Um, it was a while ago now. I just started seminary, and there was kind of a friend of a friend uh, who's very active in his church and, you know, love theology. He might have been a little bit, some people might call him like a Theo bro. Um, but so he wanted to connect with me. <laughs> I just heard, ooh, I think from the congregation. <laughs> he wanted to connect with me. It might have been a little bit more jostling with me. I'm not sure, you know, but because I was in seminary, right? And, but what he wanted to talk about most was the end times. And it was a late night kind of conversation. And I was kind of trying to hang in a little bit. But finally, I just, I tried to kindly say what I was really thinking, which was like, I don't care that much about this stuff. Like, I just, when I come at it from a Jesus frame, I think there's so much that I don't know, and I'm okay with that. Like, I'm actually okay with that. Some of you have started uh, our, our Shapes Gathering uh, that just started just this last Sunday, and we'll be doing it again next Sunday. And in the first one, we talk about Micah 6, 8, which is just this very, you know, just kind of short but succinct way of talking about, like, what is, what is the spiritual life? And, and so this verse, Micah 6, 8, starts with the question, what does your God require of you? And it's just three things. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. And that's what we saw our Jesus doing, right? And it's so grounded. It's so centered in the here and now. And so when I put myself in that frame, that the end stuff, it, it's just not, it's not the most pressing thing for me. And I see that Jesus himself, whenever he talked about end times, and he did, so I'm not saying it doesn't matter at all. I'm not saying that. 
But when he talked about it, it was with a lot of humility. It was with sort of like, I don't know when the hour or the day is. He never claimed, you know, that he could just lock it down and interpret all the signs. And so how arrogant would it be for us to think that we could, right? There's something that's, what are we looking for when we do that? What, what are we searching for? I, there's a sense that we come to it often to religion wanting certainty because certainty would comfort us. And instead, I think so often, maturity is embracing mystery. And this is one of those areas where there is a lot of mystery and there's a humility involved in just, just admitting that. Um, I also think that certainty <laughs> and what we come to sometimes for religion uh, is when we are certain, then that's what gives us that us versus them ability to sort of push others away, right? We have the inside scoop. We have the secret knowledge, the Dakota ring, right? That's going to mean that, and they don't. And that can kind of puff us up, right? And so there, there is a verse about knowledge puffing up. And again, sometimes when I sit there in those conversations with the folks who are super into the end times, that's often what I'm thinking about. And, and not that I don't have my own areas to look at, right? But I wonder how often when we get obsessed over these things, is that really what's happening? We're puffing up a bit with our sense of secret knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that's not the Jesus way. Yeah. 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 So kind of one of the things that's central, I think, for a lot of our experiences of kind of end times discussions and certainly reflected in the posts that Brennan was talking about earlier is a sense of fear, right? When, when people encounter the the sense of the end um, and certainly revelation helps with that right a, a lot of the images are pretty terrifying um, but we think it's pretty important to kind of demystify the fear that that's that's part of the way forward so um, i think as we kind of wrestle with the book of revelation one of the ways to do that is just to start by thinking about it as a genre right it is it's a type of literature and uh, we only typically know this one book, but at the time that Revelation was written, or in, in the century or, or so leading up to that time, this was just a kind of popular genre in the same way that when you're scrolling through <coughs> Netflix or whatever, you're like, oh, I'm in the mood for a romance tonight. Um, and I don't know if you've ever experienced where you think you were signing up for one kind of movie, and then halfway through, you're like, oh, gosh, this turned out to be a dark drama. And when, when you have the genre confu uh, confusion, it can be really, really disturbing. So um, I think if we recognize that, that Revelation is a genre and, and its genre is to have all these weird images and to have this uh, terrifying symbolism and all kinds of weird beasts and all this stuff, and taking it literally is where we go wrong, right? So there's early on, there's a picture of a sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. We don't ever, if we get to see Jesus in person, we're never going to see a sword literally coming out of his mouth. At least, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not what's going to happen. So, like, if I'm watching Lord of the Rings and I recognize, all right, this is a fantasy genre, not normally my thing, but in this world, you know, people put out, uh, wizards put out their hands and, you know, lightning flashes from it and they move, make people move. I can enjoy that, but I'm not going to, like, then go out the front door and wait for the eagle to come by so I can jump on his back and go to Good work, plan. right? Like, that's for there, and then the real world is something different. Mm -hmm. So that's helpful. Um, so then I think about, like, so what what is this genre trying to do? And it's 
it's a kind of prophecy, right? So it's meant to be to provoke us. It's meant to get us thinking mm -hmm. in the same way that like Jesus parables, he would say some pretty odd things that if you took mm -hmm. them literally, and sometimes we miss this if we grew up in the church because they become so familiar, we stop realizing, oh, that's weird. Um, mm -hmm. But if we didn't grow up in the church, realize, okay, if we take that literally, that doesn't really make any sense. Um, even some of the prophecies where we think the prophet is saying something that's meant to be followed, the prophet actually means something different. So a while ago, there was a series on Jonah, right? And Jonah is commanded to go preach to Nineveh, tell the people of Nineveh they're going to be destroyed. And the end result of his prophecy is they're not destroyed. So did the prophecy fail? No, because actually the literal words that this is what's going to happen weren't the important thing. The important mm -hmm. thing was this provocative statement that caused people to change their behavior. Mm -hmm. So if we, if we can think about the kind of the genre and that it's meant to be um, provocative and to get us thinking, um, then we don't necessarily um, take it literally or take it in the wrong direction. And we, we can talk about this more in a minute, but I think particularly that it was really designed primarily for people experiencing oppression, and that's, that's something to, um, to really keep sight of. Um, the other thing that I think has been really common with Revelation is, uh, is to use it to set dates. And people have been doing this for a long, long time. Some have of you- Have they gotten them right yet? Um, most <laughs> of them have been correct, but not all of them. Yeah. So, um, so this, uh, some of you, well, most of you are not old enough to, to know about this, but, uh, maybe your parents' generation, um, my parents' generation, was really exposed to uh, Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth, which I think was first written in 1970. And he had it all figured out. He knew that the end was right around the corner, <coughs> and the great beast that was gonna help bring in the end was, of course, uh, the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, right? So you all know how that turned out. Um, so that was one, but, but that's only one of the more recent. Like you go back almost 200 years and the founder of what is now the Seventh-day Adventist, he had it all figured out. Jesus was coming back, I think it was like 1840. And then it turned out Jesus didn't come back in 1840 and he sat down and realized, oh, I forgot this year, year zero. So he recalculated <laughs> and the following year, spoiler alert, he also didn't come back then. So, um, so Anyway, any, any attempt to like use Revelation to say, oh, this is, this is how we should map uh -huh. out the future is going to lead us astray. Pretty much yeah. doesn't work. It doesn't work. Yeah, as you were talking, I was thinking, and Dave and I have, had, have spent hours talking about these things, and it was just right now that this hit me. it's fun. It's fun. Yeah. It's fun, right? Like to deconstruct and reconstruct. And, um, but I was thinking, yeah, I was, I mean, I was an adult before it first hit me that the way that I had been exposed to the role of the prophet and the prophecy in general as a kid was actually different than is usually embodied in scripture. Because as a kid and growing up in churches, it was very clear to me that prophets do what Dave was just talking about. They predict the future, right? And they tell you what's going to happen. No, in reality, in scripture, generally what the prophet is doing is speaking truth to power. That's a very different thing, right? That there's this call to, to change, to turn around. The biblical language would be repent, right? So that what they're talking about doesn't happen. It, it's, it's a speaking truth to power. And so when we 
embrace that, we go, okay, so all of that language that <laughs> to us is so different, that genre, that apocalyptic genre, what is it actually trying to call us toward? What, it, what is the, the redemptive message that is at the center there? And so the passage that we started with this morning that Corrine read for us uh, from Revelations 5, the central image there in the midst of so much happening, right? There's, it's, it's a bit chaotic, right? And yet you try and say throughout the book of Revelation, what is some of the core imagery that, that stays the same, that's stable, that centers us, that centers the book? It's the image of the lamb representing Jesus the lamb uh, who, who looks as if it had been slain. And what does that say to us? What, what are we supposed to get from, from this image? Um, partly we want to refer back to again, what the whole story of faith has been, this journey that we've been on over the last four weeks, where we start in the garden, in the book of Genesis, that there is beauty. We are created to reflect the imago dei, um, created by a good God for good, for good relationships, just this bountiful, overwhelming goodness embodied in relationships that we call shalom. And yet that gets broken, broken through violence, broken through systems of oppression, injustice, ways that those, those bonds that we have with each other get twisted get cut. We do it to ourselves. Sometimes it's what we experience from others. We experience from the broken systems all around us. And yet in Jesus, there's healing. And so in this picture of the lamb looking as if he had been slain, we get this picture of Jesus who has known violence whose very body has been broken, and yet he's been restored. He's been restored, and he's beautiful, and he embodies love, justice, peace, goodness. And do you notice that even as he embodies all of these things, we still see the scars. It's still obvious what he's been through. His history has not been erased, just as our history is not erased. Even as we're made new, we're made new <laughs> in the reality of our whole story, our whole story being reframed. Um, Bill, on the Sunday that we talked about Christ and the balm he brings, the healing, there was a sense as we talked about some of the different theories of atonement, saying it's not so much God approving these systems of violence. It's not God trading in these systems of violence and saying, I'm so angry, you owe me death. Rather, it's God exposing the systems of violence. And as those systems of violence are exposed, pouring down upon Jesus, Jesus triumphing over them. The sense that evil Evil and violence are actually absorbed into the innocence and the goodness and the love of Jesus. Death being defeated, violence and oppression, no more. And the scars, 
They're just a piece of the story. They're not the whole story. And we were talking a little bit about before, as Brandon and I were talking about it, that, um, you know, this, this image, this promise of redemption, and we'll, we'll look at another passage in a moment that has a really beautiful picture of the promise of the future. Um, but in the meantime, there is, there is this tension, right, where, where we don't experience uh, the full sense of redemption right now. And obviously, um, lots of people experience lots of oppression. And um, the imagery of Revelation really speaks primarily to people in that condition. So we think about, again, the well-off, uh, white, educated pastor using Revelation to beat up other people, as opposed to uh, the people who experience oppression and, and grasp for that language to, to describe their experiences. We talked a little bit about, um, even in the Old Testament, in uh, their Psalms, like Psalm 137, where the uh, people of Israel have lost everything that mattered to them. Their temple's been destroyed. They've been carted off um, to a foreign land. And in their experience of grief, they describe um, wanting to take their enemies' babies and smash their heads against the rocks. It's this horrific, violent imagery. And I, and I don't think that it's, um, that it's actually something that they're going to go out and do. It expresses the, the anguish of their experience of oppression. But who you are shapes a lot about like, how you get to use Revelation or where you see yourself in that story, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I was... I was thinking about, as a historian, I was thinking about the example of uh, Nat Turner, who led a slave revolt in 1831, where he, he believed the end times were coming, he believed he was God's agent to help bring in the apocalypse, and he engaged in a slave rebellion and um, killed something like 60 people. Um, but he was, he was operating out of a position of being a person who was property, whose um, friends and family, whose children could be sold away and uh, who were subject to physical abuse at the whim of their owner. Um, that's a really different place than being um, in a, you know, prosperous, free situation. So, um, like, who, who gets to use that imagery and how it gets used is, I think, really important. And at the heart of, uh, of Revelation and, like, who's evil and what evil looks like, it's not about the things that we're often hung up on, like saying potty words or being concerned about sex. It's about things like oppression and, uh, and violence. Mm -hmm. So I think, that's, um, I think that's really important. And, and the, the sort of end picture of Revelation is a promise of, of hope. There are images that speak to something more positive than, um, than what life looks like now. I don't know. Do we have a slide yeah, for that next there scripture? Go. Okay, mm -hmm. great. So um, as we get nearer to the end of Revelation, we oh, actually this one is not near, but there's um, <laughs> it's a little bit further on. There is a passage at the very end of Revelation that, that has some of this imagery too, but I think there are kind of sprinkled throughout Revelation these, um, these images of kind of hope uh, for the future. And so this one talks about people before the throne of God. It says, for this reason, they're before the throne of God, worship him day and night within his temple, and the one who's seated on the throne will shelter them. I think the image of shelter is beautiful. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, 
and he will guide them to springs of water, of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Mm. See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who is seated on the throne said, See, I'm making all things new. Hmm. I think there's some really just lovely imagery of what we long for, right? Um, yeah. And uh, some of what we see in this is that kind of in contrast to what many of us were exposed to in church culture growing up, that we think of salvation as this individual thing. But a lot of it here is... Um, it's collective, it's what we experience as a community. Mm -hmm. um, and, it's, and it's political, right? A lot of the um, oppression that's being described is political and economic, it's not just spiritual, right? Those things all come together in this, in this language and imagery. Yeah, and that matters more when you're thinking from the perspective of an oppressed people. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. 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 So as we sort of wind down the conversation, uh, I, I thought, Last, so last week, um, when we did our Bible study, I left in a really grumpy mood, not because of any of the people. The people are lovely, but the pat, some of them are like shocked. The people are lovely, <laughs> but the, the passage we read was so unrelentingly grim, and I was just so irritated with it. I kept thinking, like, okay, this is scripture. There has to be something redemptive in here, right? You just... You go through chapter after chapter, and it's just this, like, bleak judgment. And I, I came home. Uh, Krista was uh, recovering from COVID, so she didn't come. Um, so I was venting to Krista. I might have used some potty words myself. It, mm -hmm. It's been known to happen. Just going off about, like... Nobody else here can relate. No, no I don't. So you shouldn't use bad words, but occasionally I do. Uh, and I was feeling like, what... What good comes out of Revelation? So Krista and I had this interesting conversation. We're like, so what would you miss if, the, if Revelation, if Luther had had his way and Revelation had just been left out of the Bible altogether, would we miss out on anything? And it seemed like a helpful uh, sort of thought experiment. So I realized, uh, okay, maybe not a lot. I, I could leave out maybe 18 or 19 chapters, but there's some good stuff in there. And um, and, th that and this is you speaking from your particular this is, position. This is yeah. me. This is me. Other people with different experiences might relate to more parts of Revelation, mm -hmm. and that's great. Yeah. Um, so I think for me, the passage that we just read is one of those things. There's some beautiful imagery about what we, what we long for and what we hope for from the promise of God of shelter and shepherding and an end to sorrow and that sort of thing. So that's, that's one thing I could hang on to. Mm -hmm. That's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, another one, because I loved that question when Dave was telling me about it. I was like, oh, that's, I mean, if it doesn't have any actual relevance to our lives, right? Um, I mean, it should. So I loved the question. So I was thinking, well, I know that recently uh, Bill did a seminar that a bunch of folks here went to all about reading the Bible and thinking about LGBTQ inclusion. And one conversation that I know was really helpful was about the book of Revelation and how there is this particular imagery that we didn't talk about uh, as much today, but it's not just the lamb, but the marriage supper of the lamb. 
There's imagery all throughout scripture and really just beautifully embodied in the book of Revelation, particularly in chapter 19, the sense that Jesus marries the church, the church, God's people, that we are the bride of Christ. And so there's a sense that scripture starts with sort of a wedding. It's a little bit anachronistic for us to put that on Adam and Eve back in the book of Genesis, but kind of there, right? So we start with a wedding and then we end with the wedding. But what's interesting though is if you really hold on to the idea uh, that God is not, not male, right? Then the bride is also not necessarily female because it's all of us, right? So now we have a genderful God marrying a genderful church. And the very simple picture of Genesis becomes much more expansive by the end of the story. It's not, again, it's not just beauty kind of restored the beginning of the picture, but it's, it's beauty reframed. Beauty almost multifaceted. We're seeing it with a lot more dimension and texture now. And, and when we look at marriage that way, when human marriage seems to be sort of a piece and a reflection of this much bigger more glorious and multifaceted picture, there's a lot more room for how we think about LGBTQ folks and marriage. Uh, I know David Newton, I'm not sure if he's here this morning, but he was one of those voices really bringing out that part of the conversation and it felt worth mentioning up here today. Yeah. And then I think it's kind of in a related vein, there are a couple places in Revelation that talk about um, a whole range of people gathering together in God's presence and talks about people from every tongue, tribe, language, and nation. And so mm -hmm. there's this, this beautiful image of all the, the whole rich diversity of God's creation of, of different people gathered mm -hmm. together. And I think that's, um, that's pretty close to the only place you can find that in scripture. That's a really beautiful image that I, I wouldn't want to lose sight of. So yeah. Yeah. Actually, the, the one on that you read just a, a bit ago um, from... Yeah, it's chapter seven. Is it chapter seven? Yeah, yeah, from chapter seven. Even there, it talks about the peoples mm -hmm. of God, yeah. right? That S actually makes a difference, right? Because there's mm -hmm. a sense sometimes people want to flatten us, right? We're all just one in Jesus. Well, yes, but you also get to bring all your particularity, the language, you know, that your family spoke, the kind of food that you made your sexuality, your gender, you're the peoples of God. You actually bring, get to bring the fullness of your embodiment, the fullness of who you are. So yeah, I wouldn't want to miss that piece of revelation either. Here's a last one that I wouldn't want to miss because again, it speaks to that sort of, sometimes you hear people talking about like the end times, like they just want to escape or they just kind of want to go back to simpler times. And, and that imagery from the book of Genesis of the garden has a lot of draw for people, right? If we could just go back to simpler times, back to the garden. But it, the book of Revelation, when it talks about the redemption and the renewal of all things, it doesn't put us back in a garden. It places us in a city. And that matters because it really emphasizes and draws on the sense that we're not just God's creation. We were created to be co-creators with God that the work we do, the creativity, all of, we are participants 
in the unfolding story, and that's a good thing. It's a thing that's celebrated in the book of Revelation. The renewal of all things is something that is both now, we're working on together, and it's not yet. We are looking forward to that time where there's truly no more tears, no more pain, where there's no more racism. We all, you know, the work that we have to do right now to love each other well, to understand each other, to cross those divisions that our culture has, has made very difficult to cross, we do look forward to the time where it's gonna be easier. It's all just gonna be restored. And we're responsible to co-create with God and to participate in the renewal right now. So thanks for coming along on this journey, Dave. Thank you for helping lead us through a difficult book. Um,